Oh, hey everybody, I'm Bailey. I'm Drew. I'm Lacey. And we're sarcastic, so let's get sinister. Hello, friends. Hello. Hey guys. A long time we're to see. Back at it for Charlie Cullen part two. Part two. But uh Lacey, you have some like prime updates or something? Do oh, I have one. Update. Is your name Lacey? No, but I have one. Okay. Well we didn't get to you yet. I have one. Thanks, Bailey. You're welcome, Lacey. So, um, we talked about Lori Vallow Daybell um a little while ago. Like, when her trial was going on, and I didn't give any updates on the trial at the time because it was very current. And I don't I think, think it was I in even... August. Yeah. Yes, because I was away, and we were doing it while I was away. Um, even, like, after that trial ended, I don't think I ever brought it up again. But she was convicted for her kid's death and sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. Woo! Um, just now, <laughs> this I was it. also excited about... Um, wait, wait. Sorry, I got two different things that I was looking at. Um, she is also now being indicted for the death of Charles Vallow, who is her fourth husband, who was shot to death by her brother Alex. Um, he claimed self-defense, but I think we all saw through that story. She is finally actually being charged with that. Woo! I'm very excited about it. Um... Chad Daybell, her husband, who his property is where her kids' bodies were found, he, his trial hasn't started yet because he waived his right to a speedy trial, and he is facing the death penalty, which I think is fair, and they are asking the judge to take the death penalty off the table because they said Lori is more culp culpable, and if she didn't get the death penalty, he shouldn't either. Personally, I think they should all have the death penalty, but it's none of my business. I could see where they would get that argument from. I wonder but, why Lori didn't get it, but I don't know. I feel like I feel like I remember. Maybe there was like a deal or something that it. if she cooperated, that yeah, yeah, I don't know. <sighs> All right, is that it? That's it for me. Right. Drew, what do you got? Uh, Drew, I think you have some crime news too. Yeah, it's less exciting because there's not nobody been put to jail yet. But um, do you remember Rex? Cowerman, I want to say his last name is. Who? He's the one being charged for the Gilgo Beach murders. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That serial killer <laughs> that yes. we just found. Um, it, I just thought this was interesting because I was looking for any updates, and like two days ago, it was the most recent update where they are. I don't know who they are. The prosecutor's office? No, I think, like, lawmakers. Okay. People who are in charge of making laws are planning to revise the Son of Sam law, where, which, I don't, do you know what that is? Mm -mm. No. It's so that, like, if you murder someone, Bailey, you can't profit off of your crimes. Oh, so, like, you can't oh, write yeah. a book. And then make a bunch of money off of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I know of that law. Yeah. So they're they're planning to revise that law to make it so that like family of 
yours can't profit off of your crimes because Rex's now I think ex-wife although no I think they just I think she just recently filed for divorce so estranged wife she signed a one million dollar deal with Peacock for a documentary about him why so, wouldn't you want to make some money when your husband's a serial killer? Yeah. I think it's good for them to revise that law and add that in there. I agree. All right. Uh, are we ready to dive back into Charlie Cullen? Yes. Yes. Um. Yeah. I feel like we've got a lot of stuff to cover. We do. We do. In the first part, we only covered like his backstory. Yeah, we uh we laid a lot of groundwork down. Um we're going to be diving into the deep end tonight. So, so remind us, he was a nurse. He was a nurse. And was he abusive? Yes. To his family? Um to his wife and the dogs. And he may or may not have killed that dog in the alley. He probably did, but yeah, let's let's say that. Allegedly. Um, So basically, he has a wife and a newborn daughter, or a young daughter at this point, um, is abusive to animals, has started nursing, um, and is basically not the same man that uh, his wife has married. Yeah, but to be fair, she's only known him for like a year, so... It's been longer at this point, but still. Oh, you're, you're right. right. They've known each other for at least nine months. Shut up. <laughs> anyway. Well, so, that's how long it takes to make a baby. Oh my god. They were together for... They were together for six months before they got engaged. And then they yeah. planned a wedding, I assume. And then they spent, like, half their honeymoon together, and then he dipped to go <laughs> to work. I forgot about that. Yeah. Anyway. Well, he had responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So, at this point, Charlie is working at his first hospital at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. And he is working the burn unit. Um, so, June 11th, 1988, Charlie killed his first victim. When was um, it? June 11th, 1988. The man's name was John Yengo. Um, he was seventeen. He was seventy-two years old. He was a retired New Jersey City judge. He died of an overdose of lidocaine. He was admitted to the burn unit with a severe sunburn. And this, I know I said that this was his first victim. Uh, this is his first victim that was a, able to be identified by name. Charlie says that there was another victim before him that was a young man suffering from HIV, but how he how he he never knew his name. Around this time, also Charlie was getting attention from the police. Um, he was racking up many speeding tickets and some drunk driving as well. Remember that Charlie had really bad alcoholism. Um, yeah, that's not like what you want to do at the beginning of your killing spree. No. No, you're Attract right. Attract a lot of attention from law enforcement. Yeah. So, again, that first victim was in 1988. 
In February 1991, a pharmacy nurse at St. Barnabas had reported suspicious-looking IV fluid bags to the hospital risk manager. The port of the bag... So, I, Lacey, have you seen, like, IV bags before? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, anyone that doesn't know, the bag's, I'll, like... Bailey, in the video... So, if our listeners would join our Patreon, I will, in the video, have a diagram of an IV bag for you. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but people that don't see that... They should uh, just join our Patreon. Okay. Uh, so, basically, bags hang vertical and on the bottom of them there's a port where you can um pretty much inject an iv line where you can like feed it to a an iv catheter or there's a uh, puncture port for where you can like add like fluid additives and stuff based on a patient's need this nurse had noticed that the port looked used but the bag looked full almost ready to burst hmm. so that being said, like, you can also use the port to, like, kind of take out some fluid um, for various things. They looked into the content- contents of this bag and found it was normal solution, but with insulin. A few so days later... Was this a bag... I'm sorry. Was this a bag that was, like, hooked up to somebody or was it just no. with all of the other bags? Nope. It was in the storage unit. Ooh, I was going to say, it's not... Very... I think she said it was just, like... So it sounds like he was just like, yeah, he was just Mm -hmm. messing with the stock. Yeah. A few days later, a patient in the critical care unit was placed on an IV drip of heparin, which is a blood thinner. Um, Soon she was in a cold sweat, confused, nauseous, and weak. They quickly discovered that her blood glucose was dangerously low, which you can die from that. Um, can also cause like seizures and like so many other problems. For the record, insulin lowers the blood sugar yes to counteract this they administer dextrose which is pretty much sugar that just sugar. hits your uh glucose and spikes it for you but she was so loaded with insulin that she continued to crash for the next 24 hours yeah, yeah. uh her bag was eventually removed from her and she immediately almost immediately got better once she was stable, they decided to put her back on her heparin fluids so she could, like, go forward with what she was there at the hospital for, which I think was surgery, if I remember correctly. Um, and she immediately started to crash again. I feel like after they found the first bag that had been tampered with by way of, inject, like, someone put insulin in it, they should have, I don't know, I would have been, like, suspicious of all the bags. They didn't know. They didn't know until like afterwards, so they continued. So she started crashing again. They tried their best to like stabilize her, but they were forced to like unhook her from everything and move her to the ICU. And when this finally happened, within twenty minutes, she was feeling better again. That's when they kind of like looked at the fluid bag and was like, "What is in this?" Because this is clearly like what's happening. Like, every time she's attached to it, something's happening. Um, I'm saying, like, the when they found the, sto- the one in storage yeah, had been tampered I, with. I mean, what are they to do? Check every fluid bag? They should. Okay. Because, well, you know, this lady could have died. You're they, gonna could have get... even, they could have checked the bags and then gotten rid is... of tampered ones and he goes back in and does it again and then they... 
if this is your attitude uh, with just this little tidbit, Drew, you're not going to be happy with the rest of the story. I'm just going to be mad because it's the 90s and the hospital protocols were apparently not as good. more laxed. So, well, you... The hospital protocols, especially around, like, controlled drugs, changed because of him. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Oh, uh, doing stuff. So, this is all happening for one patient. Meanwhile, in another room, another patient was going through pretty much the exact same thing. It's almost as if he tampered with all of the bags. Both of the bags were looked at, and they did test positive for insulin. And they had discovered tiny needle pricks in the bag. Not at, like, the port, but along the perimeter. So, like, through the plastic lining of the bag. There were ports. There were, like, little punctures. Um, they concluded that someone was intentionally and repeatedly poisoning IV bags in the storage room. It took three three bags for them to be like, you know what? I think someone's fucking with our bags. They thought the first one was just like a whoopsie-doopsie. Again, you're not going to be happy with the rest of the story, but I do have a lot more to get through, so pace yourself. Um, further investigation revealed that patients were crashing regularly for months. These cases had become so frequent that they would sometimes overlap, causing critical care nurses to like be forced to leave one patient to attend to another. Sounds like COVID. Hospital investigators compared nursing schedules with the times and dates of patient codes. Only three nurses were working every code. One of these nurses was Charlie. When they interviewed all of the other nurses, they seemed nervous, concerned for their job, their reputation, and the patients involved. But Charlie was completely unconcerned. He avoided the interview countless times, and when they were finally able to sit down with him, he sat with his arms crossed and studied the floor. He didn't seem at all rattled by the accusations or even surprised. He told them that they couldn't prove anything and just walked out. Such a suspicious thing for anybody to say in an interview. Like, hey, something weird's going on. You know anything about it? You can't prove shit. <laughs> just walk away. So the hospital had tried to reach out to the police at that time, but the police weren't interested. They didn't think they had enough evidence to do anything. <laughs> they probably could have at least talked to him. Right. Maybe investigate and then decide if there's enough evidence. If they'd sat down with him, he probably would have incriminated himself pretty quickly. <laughs> or he would have gotten up and walked away. Tell us more. The hospital increased drug security for insulin and installed cameras near the medical medicine storage rooms. Mm -hmm. But in October 1991, two more patients were discovered crashing with hypoglycemia. They were both connected to IV bags that were tainted. In January 1992, St. Barnabas had finally fired Charlie. In February 1992, Charlie started working at the, for the coronary care unit of Warren Hospital in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. He worked overnights in the... Did they not check his references? So here's the thing that we're going to find. They, no one said anything negative about him as he got passed from hospital to hospital. I feel like they didn't I mean, want... I guess they can't say too much because, like, you could argue that it would be, like, slander because they haven't proved anything I yet. feel like they're probably more worried about their reputation. 
Another thing <laughs> you'll see. Like letting him work there. Killing no, 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 no. So another thing you'll see is there. Um, the author of one of the books that's about him. That's uh, the good. He's the book's called The Good Nurse. He um explained in multiple interviews that this is where like healthcare for profit it cares more about the profits than the actual like patient safety because these hospitals were just trying to like get him out of their hospital and didn't want to risk bringing this to light to get sued bad pr yeah i mean if i was one of the patients who he he'd uh, like affected i would sue Especially if I wasn't the first three, because after mm-hmm. the first three, they were suspicious. Mm-hmm. So again, he's now working at Warren Hospital. He's working overnights in the uh, telemetry. Telemetry. Ward. Yeah, which is a halfway ward. Um, the space between like eyes on intensity of like an ICU versus like a regular hospital inpatient. Um. Primarily, it's reserved for heart patients who are under constant, like, ECG monitoring just to, like, make sure that they're doing fine. Um, It's not as, it's not used for, like, more critical patients. It's for more, like, those on the mend, like, getting better and, like, looking good. At this point, he, to get this job, he lied to the recorder, the (laughs) recruiter, saying that he left uh, St. Barnabas Hospital because the commute was too much for him. At this place, he seemed better. He was enjoying his new routine. He'd even agreed to work days instead of nights so that he could spend more time at home with Adrian. Uh, But soon, after his second daughter was born, Adrian realized that she couldn't stay with him much longer, and their relationship became both physical and emotionally abusive. She had a second daughter with him? She did. Sure. Well, because, you know, babies fix everything in a marriage. Yeah. Um, I believe at this point they separated. They weren't divorced just yet. He also attempted suicide again um, and was taken uh, to, I think, a hospital to get treatment. At this point, he ended up meeting another troubled nurse. Her name was Michelle. Michelle was also depressed and coming out of an unhappy marriage. Charlie and her struck up a friendship and he became very infatuated with her. They found it easy to discuss their personal problems with one another. Their personal problems with one another. With her suggestion, he admitted himself into a behavioral health unit uh, in Molenberg Regional Medical Center in Bethlehem, PA. She visited him, and once he felt well enough, he was discharged and returned to working at Warren Hospital with Michelle. March 9th, 1993, a 90-year-old woman named Lucy, who's a former former garment worker with three children and eight grandkids, died of a deduction deduction overdose. Digitoxin? Yeah. Okay. Um few months later, July 23rd of the same year, a 91-year-old woman died of the same overdose. She was a former silk mill worker who was described by her family as a hardworking Italian grandmother. Yeah. 
What year are we in now, Bailey? 93. Okay. Just like when he met um, Adrian, he was kind and attentive to Michelle. He bought her gifts and showered her with attention. At one point, he professed his love, but Michelle didn't feel the same way and was actually kind of scared of him. She began to avoid him and started telling him that he she was too busy with her patients and started dodging his calls. He started watching her house at that point and would circle her neighborhood. So Obviously. You know, what are you going to do if they won't return your calls? What so. else would you do? Yeah. One occasion, he actually approached her house, hoping to spy her through the window, but it looked empty. So he tried the door, found it locked. Then he tried a brick, and when no one reacted to the smashing of the glass, he entered the home. Like the, then he tried a brick. He approached Michelle's bedroom and watched her sleep for a few minutes. Then he left like nothing happened. Obviously, Michelle was distraught the next day uh, and actually answered one of his phone calls. At that point, he felt so bad that she, he owned up to the fact that it was him that broke into her house and watched her sleep. I bet you she didn't know that he was he watched her sleep. She probably just saw that the window was broken or whatever. Oh, somebody and was just like, someone them. broke into my house. And he was like, it was me. And yeah, I, I was watching you watch sleep. You. He, he claimed that he wanted to check on her and make sure she was okay and make sure that she didn't attempt suicide. I've checked on you guys a couple times. What? Yeah. We're friends and I love you. And sometimes I have we to don't, check on you. We don't, we don't live that close to, to each other. If the lights are off, Bailey, how was he to know if she was safe or not? True friendship. You're right. Um, she quickly called the police after this. Oh, good. Uh, and he sounds like uh, she's a little overreacting. He was arrested, but uh, before he was arrested, he attempted uh, suicide again. But this time he took a Xanax and was trying to time his overdose so it would kick in while he was, like, in a cell so he could get, like, attention or get out of it. Uh, but it didn't kick in in enough time and it kicked in after he was released so he, like, fell over, I guess, or something, like, on a sidewalk. <laughs> he fell down. He fell over on a sidewalk. Okay, so now we're in August in 93. Um, he pled guilty to harassment and def deviant trespassing. He was given a fine and probation, but no jail time because he pled guilty. He returned to his apartment and attempted suicide again. This time he took wine and pills, but then drove himself to Warren Hospital and admitted himself. He Was he drunk driving? And I... Wine and pills. Don't, well, I mean, he already. We already said that he was getting in trouble for drunk driving. I know. I just this. He's behaving so irresponsibly. Reckless. If I were Michelle, I would be super freaked out that after all that, he like was just loose on the streets, no jail time or anything. She, she totally because he did return back to work at Warren Hospital, and she completely avoided him in like the hallway and was keeping her distance um you mean she didn't like run up to him and say omg i was jail i feel like i don't know if any of it was reported to the hospital i feel like it should have been but i feel like that's grounds for dismissal finding out that one of your be. employees broke into another employee's house 
I don't think it was reported to the hospital either. I, I feel like been if, if it was a union, though, that would have been really tricky. A little trickier. Yeah, yeah. she should have gotten a restraining order. Then it would have been easier. Mm. So that whole, like, uh, pleading guilty and then, like, committing, trying to commit suicide again, that was August 10th. He returned to work shortly after. September 1st, 1993, he killed another woman. This one's going to be important, so I have a lot more information about her, okay? They're all her important, Bailey. I'm sorry. This one is more, like, key about taking him down. Good. Helen Dean was 91 years old. She is in the hospital for breast cancer surgery. She is doing well and actually getting ready to be discharged. Charlie walked into her room, and he met her and her son, Larry, who had been who had never left her side while she was there. Charlie asked Larry to leave the room for a minute. Um, when Larry returned, Helen had told him that the nurse stuck her with a needle. They had found a small needle poke on the internal aspect of her thigh. They tried to notify a doctor who told them that it was probably just a bug bite. That afternoon, she was actually transferred to a rehab center because she was getting better and on the mend. And as planned, um, Sorry, ignore that. So she was transferred via ambulance while Larry stopped home to pick up something for her and he was going to meet her at the rehab center. When he got home, the phone rang and he was notified that within five minutes of her getting to the rehab center, she coded. Oh my God. Larry reported his mother's death to uh, as a murder to the prosecutor's office and they autopsied her and tested for over a hundred different drugs, but they couldn't find what was given. It's especially sad because in a bunch of, like, uh, interviews and everything, Larry was unmarried, and his mother was everything to him. Do you think that that is why? Because I was just kind of wondering, like, what, why Charles chose certain people? Because at first it seemed like it was kind of just random. He was just messing with IV bags. But this one, he, like, walked into a room and injected her. He, he didn't, this wasn't, this wasn't even, like, his ward. He did not know this woman at all. Like, they didn't recognize him as, like, her But I wonder if, like, he was, like, walking down a hallway and saw that him. Like a man with his mother. Yeah. Because you know how he has a weird thing with his mom? Mm. Yeah. Or he did, because she's dead. Well, Um, yeah. Maybe. I'm not sure. I don't think. He was felt jealous. He, Charlie doesn't know, and I don't think we'll ever know. Charlie today? Because I think it pisses him off more. He doesn't like to be called Charlie? I don't know. Everyone else called him Charlie. So, that was September 1st. November of 93, Adrian left him officially. She filed for divorce and a restraining order. During their divorce, he committed sui- he attempted suicide twice. Uh, again, with pills and alcohol, I guess that's his favorite. I feel like he doesn't know how to cope. It's really hard. To cope? I guess. Um, so I want to pause for a second and explain the drug that they're finding in these patients now. Yeah. Which is called... Um, what did you say it was, Lacey? Digitoxin. Digitoxin. Yeah. 
uh, or di- DIG. Uh, that's a nurse's abbreviation I saw for it. I like so, it. So it's a commonly used drug in the ICU. It is used for the slow to slow the firing mechanism of the heart muscle. So it's used in heart failure and patients with like chronic AFib. It does take a couple hours for it to be fully effective. I also um, want to throw another statistic out at some people, just in case you don't know. Um, when a patient codes, it's about CPR only works 5 to 10% of the time outside of a hospital setting. Inside of a hospital, it's about 20%. So CPR is very rarely, like, actually effective i mean it's 20 percent, so it's not that helpful but for so, the record if you come across somebody who needs cpr do it yeah because you could it's, save their life it's, it's better i mean there's a chance it's not great but it's there's definitely chance. the chance of saving their life by doing cpr is much higher than just staring at them thank you emt i'm just saying yeah um Yeah, so that's the drug. He, You will find that most of his victims, he used this drug. So after his divorce, again, he committed suicide. At this time, he was on inden- indefinite paid leave and found himself sitting in his basement apartment, thinking, depressed, and, you know, attempting suicide again. How do you, sorry, question. How do you get on indefinite paid leave? Can I do that? I'd like to be on indefinite paid leave. Try to, uh, I think you need to have a prosecutor's office look into you as, like, person of interest. And then maybe, like, attempt suicide, like, 20 times. I feel like they wanted to let him go, but letting somebody go for mental health reasons is tough. And they didn't want to be like, he keeps trying to kill himself. We need to fire him. So they were like, (laughs) let's try this. He might keep doing it. Yeah. Maybe if we do this, he'll get a job elsewhere. But why would you? Why would you? You're being paid. Yeah. After he recovered this time, the Warren County Prosecutor's Office was waiting to talk to him. During an interview, he denied everything. They even polygraph tested him. But he had known how to cheat a polygraph and passed with flying colors. He knew this because at working with patients that are constantly on, like, blood pressure monitoring and ECGs, he kind of saw, like, how it regulated when, like, people were, like, nervous or panicked, and he figured out a way to monitor that for him. The investigation of Helen Dean didn't have enough evidence, and it kind of, like, stalled. December 1993, he left Warren Hospital. Then the next year, in 94, in April, he accepted a job at Hunter Hunter Dunn Medical Center in the ICU in Filmington, New Jersey. At this time, he also received his uh, Pennsylvania nursing nursing license. And at this hospital, he received a performance review uh, in October 1995, describing him as a patient advocate... He cares about his patients' uh, welfare and is organized. He's given all his time and has so much to offer and is very bright, witty, and intelligent. What a good guy. 
It's funny you say that because around this time, too, he started dating another nurse who was in an unhappy marriage with children. Oh, no. Well, she shouldn't have been married to children. You're so right. (laughs) You were so proud of that, too. So, uh, the next year, in 96, he, he goes on a bit of a much closer killing spree. In January... Hold on. Okay. January 21st, 1996, he murdered Leroy Sin, who was 71. May 31st, 1996, he murdered... Did I say married the first time or murdered? You said murdered. You're just stumbling around it. Thanks. Uh, (laughs) He murdered Earl Young, who was 75. June 9th, 96, he murdered Catherine... Did you just make a face? Yeah, because it's it's like right after your birthday. You were born like two days before that. My God. Uh, He he murdered Catherine Dext, who was 49. June 24th, 96, he married Frank Mazico. That time he just married. Fuck. (laughs) Murdered. He was on a freaking rampage in 96. He really was. Uh, he was 65. And then he murdered a man named Jesse, who was 81, on July 10th, 96. Can I ask? I feel Unless like... You were... hmm. I feel like um, when he got that performance review, that kind of gave him, like, they don't suspect me at all. Type. Um, confidence? Confidence, thank you. Um... Yeah. Unless you're going to tell us this later. Were these deaths all... Is he back to, like, the randomly injecting bags again? No? Okay. No, he's he's overdosing them with uh, digoxin. Okay. Yeah. Like he did to um, Helen. That wasn't Helen. Yeah. Never mind. It was Helen. No, Helen Dean did get digoxin, too. Okay. Yeah. There's... So, he does experiment and give different drugs to a few of them. I will point that out when he does okay. that. But nine out of ten at times, he's giving deduction. So at this point, after that last death on July 10th, uh, his nursing supervisor noticed the pattern. Uh, and instead of informing the authorities, she informed Charlie that if it were to happen again, he'd be fired. If another one of your, if you keep injecting these patients, if you keep we're going to have to You're out of here, you. buddy. And it won't be paid leave this time. It might. <laughs> so then, October the of that same year, he ended things with Kathy and quit that hospital. Well, yeah, they were on to him. Well, Between one November- lady was. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. He probably didn't tell anybody else, too. Between November 96 and August 97, he worked at Morristown Memorial Hospital in New Jersey. He was fired uh, due to poor performance uh, and that, sorry, that also involved the failure to administer correct drugs to a patient, which is kind of a major thing. Um, Do you think that was intentional? Probably. (laughs) February February 98, he was working at Liberty Nursing Home and Rehab Center in Allentown, PA. He declared bankruptcy um, 
from all his child support uh, problems, and he was fired only a few months after breaking a patient's arm. Ouch. I mean, that patient should feel pretty lucky, though, because yeah. they lived. So, next, November 98, he found part-time work at Easton Hospital in intensive care unit, in the intensive care unit in Easton, PA. He also, so that was part-time. Um, in December 98, he began working some shifts at uh, the burn units in uh, Lehigh Valley Hospital. While he was there, he had taken the lives of two more. Or actually, I'm so sorry. He took, while he was working at both hospitals, he took the lives of two more. The first one was December 30th, uh, 1998. Omar Shrem was 78 at Easton Hospital, who was described by his daughter as a man who worked two jobs to provide for his wife and three kids. In August uh, 1999, he murdered Matthew Mattern, who was 22, at Lehigh Valley Hospital. He had been severely burned in a car accident. At the start of 2000, he attempted suicide again by means of carbon monoxide poisoning. Apparently, the story goes that he put a charcoal grill in his bathtub, lit it, and hoped that the carbon monoxide would kill him. A neighbor smelled the smoke and called the fire department and the police. I feel like there's easier ways to kill yourself with carbon monoxide. Yeah. He likes what? to be creative. He's just having fun with it. Uh, once it, it was... Do you think he was experimenting each time? Since it seems like he's trying new things with each of his suicide attempts. Or does the pills a lot. This is, this is where... But Dipper was, I feel like. I said it in the first... Uh, episode that uh, suicide's not funny and it's definitely not like a cry for help or no, you're not doing it for attention. This is where I start to think that he was or he he just wasn't doing it efficient. Um, I thought like the, the one after his mom's death I thought was the last real one. After that I thought it was just attention or Trying to get sympathy or like an absolute inability to like, handle things you, appropriately. Yeah. yeah, the the amount of times he's swallowed pills and like wine or, or alcohol, like you don't have to take yourself to the hospital, dude. His you liver. Also, you also don't probably... have to set a grill in your bathroom. Yeah, and well, if he had been doing it so many times, he would know at this point how many he would have to take to actually get the job done. Also, he's a nurse. He pro should know. He found ways to kill other people. Clearly, the the hospitals he's working at does don't have like very secure medicine cabinets. He could just grab one of his IV bags. Yeah, hook it up. And yeah. It. So once he was stabilized, he returned home and was found him found bills waiting for him. They were for alimony, child support, and some letters from the Morris Memorial Hospital. Can I can I make yeah. a guess at the next part? Does he try and kill himself again? No. <laughs> February 21st in 2000, he attempted to kill a 73-year-old woman uh, with an overdose of didn't How do you spell this? Drug. 
Well, I think there's, isn't there like digoxin and digitoxin? Aren't there like two? Yes, that are really digoxin. Because <clears throat> I know yeah, that I, mean, I said one earlier, and then I was like, I don't know if that's the one she meant or not. Well, yeah, you better. said digitoxin, Lacey, and I was like, I don't think that's the one she's talking about, buddy. I couldn't hear you. I think you cut out at me. That's, I just texted it to you. Um, anyway, this woman, she was lucky and survived. This was at Lehigh Valley Hospital. At this point, his colleagues grew suspicious, and it became very difficult for him to work. Uh, huh. And he left Lehigh Valley at uh, in April of 2000. It's tough when people are on to you. Now, the other problem with Charlie was... There's another one? The Jackson. <laughs> okay. Well, the main also... problem with how he's getting hired is because he appeared an ideal hire. His attendance was perfect. He had experience in intensive care, critical care, cardiac care, ventilation, and burns. And he had no schedule of conflicts. He loved working overnights, weekends, and holidays. That's so, I'm not over that. I know. His ex wife isn't either. That's just, that's like the first big red flag where Adrian should have been like, oh, you know. Maybe he's not somebody who's committed to me. Also, when you said that it made him that his coworkers getting suspicious, suspicious made it hard for him to work. Was it work work or was it like his his work? I don't know. Probably both. Well, yeah, but like mm. if someone's just watching you do your work, you and you're not doing anything wrong. I would think that it wouldn't be that difficult to work. Okay. I think he was trying to dose people and people were just like following him into rooms and he was like, what the fuck are you doing? Anyway. Okay. So two months after leaving uh, Lehigh Valley, he found work at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, PA. Starting June. Have... Sorry, do you have a map of like all the hospitals he's hit? Do I personally? No. <laughs> there, I am. Un... I knew that he worked at St. Luke's in Bethlehem, um, because I was born at St. Luke's in Bethlehem. I didn't realize he was at every other fucking hospital. Shut up. Yeah, in the he, area. He that's... traveled around a lot. That's why I wanted to know if there's a map he's all over the East and Lehigh Valley. So... He's just. The other, the other thing at this time, there was also a nursing shortage, so nurses traveled a lot and were transient. So it's very common okay. for them to go like hospital, hospital. Um, that's also why he got so many jobs at different hospitals. Yeah, he was I was able thinking to. that it would be a little red flaggy for me hiring somebody if they were job hopping like that, but not if that's just what people were doing. Nurses were doing it, and time. like it's not. There's only been a few that he's stayed like. A few months at most of them he's like staying years at yeah it is so a big it's not yeah i found a map okay great <laughs> i'm gonna put it over so right excited. about now so that everybody can see where his uh journey can i continue on yes please okay great so starting in the two th in two thousand one, a series of patients at St. Luke's Hospitals, St. Luke's Hospital, died of strange circumstances. 
February 8th, 2001, John Gallagher, who was 90, was attempted to be murdered. He survived. June 22nd of the same year, a 79-year-old woman was overdosed with the the Jackson. She had eight children, 22 grandkids, and helped her husband run a taxi company after their home. November 8th, 2001, a man called named William Park, who was 72, um, died of an overdose. He was a self-employed upholsterer, upholsterer, someone that upholsters. Upholsterer? Yeah. (laughs) And was also a Korean War veteran. On December 28th, 2001, uh, he attempted to murder a 72-year-old. January 9th, 2002, he overdosed an 80-year-old Samuel Spanger, Spangler. May 5th, 2002, an 82-year-old man named Daniel George was overdosed. He had owned a few businesses in the area and left behind three daughters and three grandchildren. June 2nd, 2002, Edward O'Toole, who was 76, was overdosed, and he was a Navy veteran of World War II. June 2002, after Edward O'Toole, Cullen was fired quickly, and sorry, he was fired quietly from St. Luke's due to growing suspicions around him. They had also found about 50 vials of various medications in a sharps container, which is where you put use needles um many were anything sharp yeah many were unused but there had some that there were some that were open so i think they were worried about him like stealing or misusing drugs so they quietly fired him so concerned about the number of people who've been suspicious of this man and we're like we gotta get him out of here we're we'll we'll double back to that firing and uh in a few minutes uh the next month in july he began working at sacred heart hospital in allenstown pa but the middle allenstown allentown is it just allentown it Hmm. said allenstown but i don't know but the medical community is a close one and the rumors and the the rumors stalking the continuous suicide attempts and the suspicious deaths um circled around him and he quit Sacred Heart Hospital after 16 days. That was his shortest time at a hospital. Well, yeah. It's hard to do your work when people are watching you. It's true. And whispering. So after that, he moved to Somerset, New Jersey Hospital um, as a critical care nurse. And this would be his last final hospital. So what number is this? Probably like nine. Ten. I think we're at nine. Wow. Um, let me look. No, we did so see Barnabas. We did. I know that you said that like it was, a ton- it was like traveling and so it wasn't that big of a deal, but I would still be, I don't know, concerned that he's been at nine facilities in what, 10 years? Longer than 10. Um. Still though. When they um when they finally catch him, it would have been sixteen. Sixteen different hospitals or medical it's centers. Sixteen years. years. Oh, okay. 
for our listeners, Bailey is counting. Doing it on her pretty holiday nails. I think it's around like 9 to 10. That's still crazy. Yeah. So he started working as the critical care nurse. Um, He worked very closely with two other nurses in the CCU. Um, One's name was Amy. One's name was Donna. Amy described him as an excellent nurse and teammate. She loved working with him, and he took care of her and made her laugh. If anyone's seen the um the Good Nurse, the Netflix movie, um, Amy's the like main character in there. She did have a heart condition that Charlie knew about, and he actually like took care of her and assisted on her shifts, like because she had she? she was young. She was like in her forties. Oh, she had so cardiomyopathy. Not a surrogate mother. No. Amy said that she could sense that Charlie was probably bullied a lot while young, and she kind of took on the role of, like, an older protective sister. Today... Could she sense that he also tried to poison his classmates with rat poison? No. Today we know that, uh, I think it's at least 13... People died at the hand at his hands in Somerset. So, Somerset, Jesus. Uh, are you ready? Ready. His the big show. Yeah, February twelfth, two thousand three. Uh, he murdered a sixty-year-old woman with sixty. Uh, oh, okay. With Tadoxin. February 23rd of the same year, he murdered a 72-year-old woman with the same drug. How? When did he murder the first one? The 12th. Of February? Mm-hmm. So he just waited a week? Mm-hmm. Cool. Same day, another uh, man died of the same drug overdose, and he was 89. If we were on Criminal Minds, we would notice his cooling off period. Yeah. March 11, 2003, so literally the next month, he murdered an 83-year-old World War II veteran with uh, norepinephrine. April 6, 2003, he murdered another woman uh, who was 80 with norepinephrine. May 5, 2003, he murdered a 66-year-old man with sodium nitroprusside. So you say, per side? I don't know. I don't know what you're looking at. But was there? Did you find that there was a digoxin uh, shortage nationwide or something? Like why is he? He likes. He liked to experiment. But he like it seemed like he found his drug of choice. Yeah. And then he was it, like, you know what? I put it in his in the chat, Drew. I wonder if um, people were starting to get suspicious about it. Possibly. I would call it nitroprusside. Okay. Um, May 15, 2003, he murdered Michael Strenko, who is 21, his youngest victim. He used norepinephrine again, and Michael was a high school soccer uh, player and a track member. He was hospitalized for a splenectomy. Um, he also had like an autoimmune disease, which is why he needed the splenectomy, I believe. Um, sorry, how old was Michael? 21. Oh, was that his youngest? Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
June 18th, he attempted the murder of Philip Greger, who was 48. June 28th, 2003, he murdered Reverend Florin Gall, who was 68. He uh, was hospitalized and intubated for pneumonia and was actually hospitalized for a long time, but was in the process of getting better. Sorry, right before the Reverend, he attempted. Mm -hmm. So Gregor was okay? Gregor, Gregor survived, yeah. Oh, okay. June 29th, 2003, he attempted another um, who was a 40-year-old man named Jin Han. July 13th, 2003, Pasquale something. I can't say his last name, but I really wanted to say Pasquale. Put um, it in he the was... chat. What? Put it in the chat. Oh, boy. I want to see it. Um, you flash it on the screen then. Is uh Napolitano. Napolitano. Okay. Napolitano. All right. He was eighty. He is died this... of a dopamine overdose and was okay. a World War II veteran. I was gonna ask if he had gone back to the Dijoxin. The Reverend was murdered with uh the Dijoxin. Okay, and then he went to dopamine for Pasquale. Yeah. And then the Jin got, or it's not Jin. Jin Han. Yeah, what, it, what was him? I don't know. I know that he survived, though, and was attempted. Oh, okay. Yeah. August 11th, uh, Chris Hardgrove, who was 38, died of a norepinephrine overdose. He was a carpenter and a father of two. August 27th, he attempted the murder of Francis Agoa, who was 83. I don't know what he used in that situation. September 20th, he murdered a 70-year-old with Dijoxin. September 23rd, he uh, murdered James Strickland, who was 83. What was that? So, we have a digital photo picture frame oh it's a, it's a video yeah my oldest yeah. was messing with it because we, it used to like the videos that we would put onto it the sound would freak us out because you know we'd be like i don't know walking through the living room mm -hmm. and just hear like a kid scream or something so we turned the volume off but whatever my oldest did to it today she turned the volume back on so, Fun for you. Yeah. Okay, um, so... It seems like if the murders were attempted, they didn't... It, they probably didn't know what was used. Just that he was probably in the room, they crashed or something, but then they got him back up. Yes. It's hard to do an autopsy on a person who's alive. That is correct. Um... So I think we left off on James Strickland, who was 83, died of uh, Dijoxin. His family said that he was grieving his wife at the time of his death, but he also loved the harmonica and was actually buried with one, which is so sad. That's cute. October 21st, 2003, he murdered a 73-year-old with Dijoxin as well. He was an electrical engineer for 30 years. I like your face every time you say talk Thank you. A little eye roll as she yeah, each time. Say it right. Without fail. <sighs> okay. So, 
Somerset had noticed a pattern. Oh, did they? We're going to... The timeline goes a little... We're going to go a little bit back further. By so, victim 10, they were like, something's going on. No. Specifically in June, when the Reverend had died, that's when they sort of noticed something going on. Four months in. This is where you're going to get annoyed. Okay? I'm already annoyed. Well, <laughs> just hang on for a second. Let me get through like this next like five minutes. It's going to really piss you off. So one of the head nurses had called uh, the New Jersey Poison Control Center in Trenton. The nurse described that a patient had gotten a dose of the toxin. Shut up. Two days ago and was still having increasing levels in their system. They said that they had another patient around the 16th that died and now on the 28th that died of didoxin in the same unit. Initially, poison control thought it was a lab error and they had asked if anything else like strange has been going on at their hospital. The nurse said, off the record, there were two people in the hospital before this that went into hypoglycemic, went hypoglycemic strangely. At this point, poison control told Somerset that this is the police matter they need to call. Two days later, Poison Control followed up with the hospital and was told that the administration was taking over the investigation and called in the hospital attorneys. It, Real it would quick. take. Is, are, so, is he back in New Jersey now? Yeah. Yeah, he's oh. He goes between Good. Jersey and PA a lot. Um, yeah, PA. So, that was two days after they were like looking around at the Reverend's death, which happened in June. Somerset didn't report uh, to the authorities until three months after that. Well, they had they had to do their own investigation with lawyers, right? Because lawyers know the law, so they needed to make sure that what um, was going on was illegal. Yeah, and who who better to tell them than hospital lawyers? So, hospitals are bound by duty to report all suspicious deaths to their prosecutor's office, um, and they reported to Somerset County Prosecutor's Office on October 3rd, 2003. Detectives Danny Baldwin and Tim Braun were on the case at this point. I'm actually surprised um, they reported it at all. I thought you were going to say they didn't. Yeah. Mary Lund was the hospital's risk manager, explained... That over the past, like, year, there had been some unexpl unexplained incidents involving patients in their critical care unit. She went on to explain that the hospital conducted an investigation into the death of Reverend Florin Gow, uh, did, who did unexpectedly die overnight from pneumonia. Lund provided a very sparse amount of information of the hospital's internal investigation. It led nowhere. But in one folder, they did the detectives did see Charlie Cullen as like a name printed somewhere. On a hunch, they looked into Charlie. They found his two arrests. One was from drunk driving and the other was the criminal trespassing. As they were reaching out for more information, um, there was a file on Charlie in like a state clerk office or something i think from like when he was looked into previously and they actually found a sticky note stating that the pa state police were at one point requesting the same information and it listed the name and the number of a trooper the trooper mentioned on the phone once they reached out that they were looking into charlie for stockpiling medications 
So the detectives kind of like were very interested in Charlie at this point and started interviewing his family members. His family didn't appear surprised about getting questions about Charlie, even though they weren't told the extent of the investigation at the time. They agreed that he too was a fucking weirdo. Yeah. Uh, the detectives had put together a timeline of his career looking at all his resumes. While reaching out to previous hospitals, they had heard of an incident at Warren Hospital, the Helen Dean incident, um, and found that a nurse was trying to, I think, like, reach out to police about him at the time. Um, that nurse was named Pat Medellin. She worked with Charlie in the St. Luke's um, ICU. When Charlie was fired, like, quietly, she reflected on her experiences with him. And she remembered that there was a week that she had very stable patients who would just code out of nowhere. She took the time to look into the deaths that had taken place while, like, Charlie was there. She found about 67 deaths. And she said it was statistically reasonable for Charlie to be on shift for about a quarter of them. So, quarter of 67, she got to, like, 17. She had found that Charlie was on shift for 40 of those deaths. Holy shit. Like, 80% of them? Yeah. She had also, while reflecting, she had thought about two patients in particular who she felt that he targeted specifically um and one of them she was actually quite fond of uh one of them was sam who let me i'm not scrolling back but his name was san sam he came to the unit locked in which is when like they're kind of like unconscious they're not like doing much but they're still like i don't know it's not like coma right drew it's 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 Similar to coma because like you're you're not able to move, but you're conscious with but you can't like move. Yeah, it's called locked in syndrome because you're like locked in your body and you can't do anything, but you're conscious and you're aware of what's happening around you. So no, it's terrifying. Yeah, I haven't experienced it, but it sounds terrible. So a few days into his like stay at the hospital, he started making like a groaning noise and was like slowly like coming out of it. He started saying to Pat, the nurse, I love you. Uh, and even after more time, he would say, you are my sunshine whenever Pat would walk in to his room. He coded while Charlie was on shift one night. Pat had reached out to her upper management, um, and she said that she was sure that he was killing people, which the administration at that hospital had turned around and said, nope, we're sure he wasn't. Um, they claimed people to- People die in hospitals. They claimed that they had already investigated the death and had ruled it out. That morning after her shift, she had called a close personal friend who was also a police captain and she was feeling like hopeless and that no one would listen and like take this seriously that he was hurting people. She had even gone as far as reaching out to the state police who had started an investigation. Some time passed and the CEO of St. Luke's had called all the nurses together and said that the police investigation was over. It didn't turn up anything. 
Quickly after that meeting, rumors were circulating around the hospital and the nurses that whoever had gone to the police had caused a lot of havoc because St. Luke's were current, was currently working on a new construction site, and in order to have the money for that site, they were to report any possible lawsuits, and if that if they had found that they had a nurse that was killing people, they would have been charged a lot of money and probably wouldn't have been able to complete that construction. Yeah, so yeah. it was more so that St. Luke's just wanted him out of there in order to protect themselves. I, like, I understand, like, you don't want bad PR, but, like, I feel like it's worse when you find out afterwards that they didn't do anything. Yeah. So as the investigation with the new detectives was going on, they became they were getting very frustrated with proving the case. Somerset had said that they had given them any and all documents that over already, which we'll find out is not true. And the Warren Hospital, I know I don't know if St. Luke's was complying, but the Warren Hospital had already destroyed their charts. Which side note, medical records by law need to be held on for a minimum of seven years. After that, they can be destroyed. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's also, not necessarily Tessa. suspicious in its own right that they did it? No. Okay. Yeah. Um, so at this point, the detectives had... Uh, they wanted to get more information about what drugs he was using and what drugs they were seeing in all these patients. So they reached out to the poison control line. Um, they spoke with one of their consultants there and asked about uh Dijoxin. and the consultant returned to them and was like are you referring to somerset there apparently was a dead silence on the phone followed by the detective asking what are you talking about and the consultant had told them that we've been telling them that they've had a murderer on their hands for a while now that's embarrassing at that point the detective was like i'm gonna meet you at your office we'll, we'll <laughs> talk about this so, Dr. Stephen Marcus was a medical director of Poison Control, was more than willing to talk and share that he had actually recorded phone calls with the hospital. The detective soon learned that the hospital wasn't being completely forthcoming about the situation. It was, what? It was evident that the hospital was covering it up and trying to keep their business and their doors open. They waited three months before reporting it and proved, provided minimal information to the detectives from the beginning. Uh, excuse me. I'm gonna edit this video to give you like a little loading circle on your head every time you pause to, to figure out where you left off. Fuck off. <laughs> no. Uh, do it for Jackson too. Shut up. <laughs> while uh, while they were going through like his history with like different hospitals and everything, they noticed that each of these hospitals like someone knew that he was up to no good or had their suspicions and instead of reporting it they just fired him or he quit before they could yeah i really i hope that at the end of this you tell me that like a bunch of admin people got fired that's what i'm hoping okay <laughs> yeah. i'm still hoping okay uh give me one second please yeah, I'm just gonna put the little circle on your forehead. Shut up! God, you're <laughs> the worst! Okay, so... 
in a hospital, there are computerized uh, dosing pillars almost for certain like drugs that you would need like immediately in the ICU, like so you don't have to run to the pharmacy. At this point, it was called um, Pyrexis, I think. I have like a Cubex at my hospital, but pretty much you need your fingerprint or like you have an ID, you have to put in the patient information and then you have to put in like the drug that you want in the quantity. At this point, they had a rec they had a machine like that that's Pyrexis. It's it wasn't as secure as how they are now, and I'll explain why and how Charlie was able to get these drugs. So each uh, medication machine keeps records. The detectives reached out to Somerset, like, hey, can I get, like, what record, like, the records of, like, Charlie and what he was pulling up? Uh, the risk manager, risk manager, Lund, had said that the, uh, the records were only hold on, held on for, for 30 days and the data was destroyed. That seemed a little off to the detectives, so they actually reached out to the manufacturer, who corrected them and said that the machine takes keeps the records forever. This is one of my favorite parts. So then the detectives went back to Somerset and was like, give me his information, or we're going to confiscate all of your machines and do an FBI forensic analysis. She made a call, and then she magically was able to retrieve all his records. Yeah. This helped them be able to place the medications, like, in Charlie's hand at given times. October 31st, Charlie was fired from Somerset. They, they used the excuse that they found a discrepancy in his resume. Uh, and this is actually true. The detectives did find, because they had his whole, like, work history, they did find a discrepancy and encouraged the hospital to do this so that he was away from patients even though they were still like working on getting enough evidence to yeah, arrest Yeah, you don't want him to keep killing people. Yeah. At least he's not on paid leave. That's true. Uh, after Hila was gone, they, uh, the detectives, no, oh, sorry, the detectives started interviewing people at Somerset. But somehow, the administration were able to get the risk manager in the room for every fucking interview, which made it very uncomfortable for the nurses, because you have your boss staring right at you. Like, why wouldn't they want this? Like, why? I told you you're just going to get more annoyed. Uh, close to the end of all their interviews, they finally sat down with Amy, who was his close friend and fellow nurse. Initially, she defended Charlie and she thought he was being unfairly targeted. While she was getting interviewed, uh, the risk manager actually had to get, like, called away. Um, and the detectives actually had a crack at her by herself. While they were alone, all they did was show her his drug records, and she instantly knew something was off. Uh, she also recalled at that point a shift where she happened to, like, see a patient start to code. She called a co code blue, ran into the room to see Charlie standing at that patient's bedside pushing a medication. As they started CPR, she found out that he was pushing lidocaine. 
And soon the resident arrived, looked over the chart, and asked who gave the patient lidocaine. Amy, who was running the code, uh, took responsibility, saying that she had proved it. The resident had told her pretty much, like, that's dumb, because the patient is actually allergic to lidocaine. Oh, silly Amy. Amy had also admitted that she, like, took drugs out for Charlie from the Pyrexis, um, but wasn't aware of what he was, like, doing with the drugs. I feel like you should be aware. Yeah. Yeah. Just, like, blindly help somebody yeah. get their hands on drugs at the hospital. She also discovered that when Reverend Gal was, uh, when he coded, Charlie, he wasn't Charlie's patient that night. Um, but records had showed that Charlie was snooping in his medical chart repeatedly that day until he died. She discovered a similar pattern with other patients who had died in suspicious circumstances, too. She also realized that the nurses had IV bags lined up, making it easy for him to inject any number of cocktail of drugs randomly into one or more bags. And he wouldn't even have to, like, have had to take them to patients' rooms. Like, other nurses could have just been carrying them and injecting them, not, not even knowing that they were dosed. At this point, she agreed to help the detectives, and she sort of acted like a translator for the Pyrexis uh, records, which, for under Charlie, his log showed multiple cancellations. So Charlie would go under a patient, he would push the dachshund, the drawer would pop open, and then he would take what he wanted, but on the actual computer, he would cancel it, showing that so for the computer's sake, it looked like he never pulled anything up. It was just like an accident that he accidentally like hit that drug. Another way that I saw that he was like getting his drugs was he would order like Tylenol or something. And the way these machines work is once you order it, like you have your fingerprint and everything, the like a drawer would open and you would have access to all the drugs in that drawer. How they are now, though, is for comparison, Lacey, is it's still drawers, but every drug has their own cubby. So if you are ordering a drug, that drawer will open and that specific cubby will open. You can't open any other cubbies. So after getting all this information of drugs and everything, they needed a strong case to, like, really arrest him. Revan... Not just fake arrest him. Yeah. They went with um, the Reverend as their strongest seeming case. At this point, they got permission to, re -ex to exhume his body, and they were able to still find high levels of digoxin in his system, and they had changed his cause of death to homicide. Couldn't, um, couldn't Hella Dean's son identify him as the nurse that kicked him out of the room? At this point, um, Larry had already passed away. Well, that sucks. Yeah. Like, this is in 2003. So he wasn't allowed to see Charlie get arrested and everything. That yeah. Sucks. I think Larry passed away at 2001. Um, yeah. So as they're exhuming the body and everything, Charlie is still... They encouraged Amy to still have a relationship with Charlie. Um, to still be able to keep tabs on him and get information. Make sure he's not murdering anybody else. Around this time, he had called her saying that he'd be starting at a new hospital. 
they knew they had to act quickly, even though they were nervous and weren't sure if they had enough. So Amy wired up and met Charlie for lunch. In December 2003, they met at a restaurant. They were making small talk when she outright confronted him, told him that she knew he was murdering people. At that point, she described that his demeanor completely changed. He stiffened, went pale, and tilted his head to the side. His voice changed, too. She said he wasn't her friend at that point. His face was like nothingness and was just empty. He told her he refused to let her take him to the police, and he insisted that he wanted to go down fighting. That, uh, I'm pretty sure it was the same day, he got arrested. December, Did he go down fighting? No, December 12, 2003. While he was in custody, he initially refused to talk. He denied, denied everything and was confident that they had no firm proof. The police leaned on Amy again, um, and she agreed to meet with Charlie while he was in custody. Um, and he had told her that he didn't want to confess, but she sort of lied to him and was like, well, I'm implicated too, so, like, I really need you to, like, air this out and say, like, what actually happened. Um, she also pled to him like saying that like you don't want to like pull your family through a trial and everything like please do what's right and then he started talking he admitted to having administered between 30 and 40 lethal injections during his medical career while at saint Bartimus, he admitted to spiking bags with insulin three to four times a week I, in one of the documentaries on Netflix of him, I was able to, like, witness, like, his demeanor in his confession and his body language is, it's kind of scary looking. Like, he's just, yeah. he's so comfortable. Like, at one point, like, both of his legs are kind of, like, he's got a weird, like, crossing of them on a chair. Like, they're not, like, crossed at the knees. They're, like, kind of, like, tucked under him. Very, like... Okay. teenagers teenager is how they would like sit in chairs and he was very nonchalant he cried at one point claiming to have done it because of the suffering and the inhumanity of patients in hospitals he's a hero not all, not all of them were like on their way out though mm -hmm. yeah i feel like most so, of them were doing okay i feel yeah. like you can only use that excuse if you kill people who are actually suffering it was also revealed that he liked using a paralytic drug named Vecuronium, I think, um, which would leave patients completely awake and alert, aware of what's going on, but unable to move, breathe, talk, and they would be completely awake while they gasped for air, pretty much, slowly dying. December 15th, 2003, he was charged with the murder of two former patients, including the Reverend. December 17, 2003, he was transferred to Trenton State Psychiatric Hospital. After receiving a guarantee that he wouldn't face the death penalty, he became part of his part of his deal. He pled guilty and was willing to be cooperative. But how poetic would it be if he was sentenced to death by a lethal injection? I was like, you know what, I'm happy we can't sentence him to death because for someone that has tried to commit suicide X amount of times, let's not give him his goal. Yeah, but like how many of those times were 
sincere. I don't know. But still. I think maybe two. So, January of 2004, he began with his interviews with detectives. He confessed to... Cont- uh, sorry. He, he, hmm. <laughs> so, wait, what the fuck is going on with my notes? Hold on. <laughs> okay. Um, he confessed that he had only killed one patient or remembered one patient in the five years that he spent working in the burn unit in St. Barnabas. And that was the judge yang yingo um even though previously he had said that he claimed his first victim was a young like hiv patient the problem is he's spiking bags he doesn't he also didn't bother or work with all of these people that died so he doesn't even know everyone he's killed i mean after you hit a certain number it's hard to keep track yeah Uh, In April 2004, he pled guilty to the murder of 13 patients and the attempt of murder of two while at Somerset. Uh, He also, in May, he admitted to murdering three more patients while working at Warren Hospital. In October of that year, he admitted to the murder of Omar Shram while working at Easton Hospital. He was also charged with the murder of six more patients whilst working at Lehigh Valley Hospital. November 17th, he pled guilty to the murder of five patients at St. Luke's, as well as one murder and three attempted murders at Lehigh Valley. I guess additional. Um, December 16th, 2004, he pled guilty to the 1988 murder of John Yingo, which was his first one at St. Barnabas. June 2005, he pled guilty to five murders committed at Hunter- Hunterton Medical Center. At this point, he claimed that he, he guesstimated that he had claimed around 40 people. Many of his victims remain uh, unidentified because, again, he doesn't even fucking know how many he affected or killed. It also has to do with the fact that uh, charts had been lost and medical records had been destroyed because after seven years, you don't need to keep them anymore. Um, He was only ever charged with the murder of 22 patients, though. In March 2005, the U.S. government launched an investigation into the hospitals where he worked. This was intended to see if federal laws were broken by failure to act properly against him. I don't know what happened after that. The following year in March, uh, he was sentenced to 11 consecutive life terms for the murder of 22 patients in the attempt of three in New Jersey. He will not be eligible for parole until he has served 397 years, which personally, I feel like just rounded up to 400. Let's make it a solid number. Nice even number. His motive has never been established. He sometimes would choose victims impulsively. He likes to say that he was ending suffering, despite the fact that many of his patients were on the road to recovery, and he killed a 22-year-old and a 21-year-old. Like, they're not... He even had a motive that he can recognize for a lot of them. No. 
Um, like they all do, he liked to, he also liked to say that he lived most of his life in a fog, and it blacked out at the memory of murdering most of his victims. Always black out, then. He was murdering, like, every other week. Which, again, they're all on the mend. One of his victims, who is, like, only 60, she was an asthma patient recovering from, I think, an asthma attack. In no pain. Totally, like, able to live, like... 20 more years just fine when he killed her after his trial he was confronted by the victim's families during their witness statements and he was a spineless asshole stat sat completely stoic staring at the floor not interacting with any of them not even paying attention um the good nurse author who wrote the book and like helped with the Netflix series and everything and really knows him just by studying him, believes Charlie saw himself as a victim. And as a victim, he is entitled to lash out in any way he wants. Um, he believes that he did it for power and control. And while the, like, while the rest of his life was spiraling, like while he was getting divorced and losing his kids and, and this was his way of gaining control in his life. I don't think that he cared about his kids. Well, like, he likes to say that he was a good dad and, like, all that, but, like... There are people who are, like, shitty parents who still fight for custody in, like, custody battles and stuff because they want to have that control over their kids. Did he fight for custody? I don't know. I'm just saying that, um... He, he, like, he, did he might have cared about custody, not having them. I think. Him. <laughs> I didn't focus on his fathering because I don't really care because there's no way for what he did, he could be a good dad. I'm surprised that um, when Amy, when the police let Amy talk to him and she was like, you need to help so I'm not implicated and you don't want to put your family through trial and stuff. I'm surprised that that swayed him at all. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like it was probably something else in her statement. Yeah, or maybe he was I mean, like, maybe they do it's have very... It's very clear that he and Amy were very close, and it, have you guys ever seen The Good Nurse, that Netflix movie? I think I when did. When I was looking up pictures, I saw clips it's, of it. It's a good, like, quick little movie, but it shows, it focuses on Somerset and Charlie and Amy's relationship. And, like, Charlie really, like, he took care of her. Like, he would give her medicine, he would make sure that she was, like, remotely okay, um while at work and like while she was like having these cardiovascular problems um so i think she really like she really swayed him obviously and he cared about her in some way um but all in all charlie worked for 16 years and i think we got at like nine different hospitals he attempted suicide some 20 times and he admits to killing up to 40 people, but some believe it's closer to, it could be in the 400s. Um, unfortunately, well, I mean, we, he was we'll, just spiking bags left and right, so. Yeah. Unfortunately, we'll just, I, even, he's still alive in state, in Trenton, but we'll just never, we'll never have a set answer for how many were affected by him. And that is Charles Cullen. Hmm. I don't know what to say about him. 
Yeah. Um, I noticed that there was no happy ending for Drew with administrators being fired. No. Well, there might be. Maybe they did it quietly. I don't I know. understand the whole, like, they want to cover their ass and have good PR. But also, like, if you discover a nurse doing something and you get rid of them and take care of it immediately, that's a good look for you. Like, there are going to be people who are like, oh, he was killing people at the hospital. But more people are going to say they got him out of there as soon as they, like, and their PR would lean into that, too. Yeah. It's so much worse ten years later. They tried to sweep it under the rug. Yes. In the... There's... So there's The Good Nurse on Netflix. That's more of, like, a uh, theatrical documentary. Like, a reenactment. And then there's... Uh... Some specific, like, documentary. I forget what it's called. You can just search Colin on Netflix and come up with it. And there's video of i think it's somerset's ceo interviewing on tv and saying how like proud he is and like pretty much taking ownership of catching him <laughs> which I mean, like i will like i was screaming i was like yeah but like you waited three fucking months yeah i was well, gonna say at least somerset did something though but so here's the thing also but it's when they were waiting those three months while investigating, five more people died. Yeah. That's not a good look. Yeah. No. So, like, sure, you're doing your internal investigation, but had you had gone to the police, police, and, like, their investigation, they worked really hard on it, and, like, it was pretty in a tight amount of time, because they knew they had to do something immediately. Um... But, like, you could have fired him so much earlier and saved those five people. Leave mm -hmm. So that he wouldn't be yeah. messing with patients. Yeah. It's I'm like sorry. little kids, if when they do something, like, they break something. And instead of just saying, I broke it and dealing with the consequences right away, they try to cover it up and hide it and lie about it for a while. And then it's worse because yeah. they get in trouble for breaking it and for lying. It's like that, but grown-ass people. Yep. I don't have anything witty to say at the end of this. I'm sorry. Bummer. I, I know that, like, we don't think it was, um, mommy issues, but I think it was mommy issues. I think mommy issues played a role. It's definitely not daddy issues because he never met him. Yeah, burn. yeah, I feel like he didn't get enough attention. As one, a, um, one of eight, yeah. so yeah. Right, and so, but he had like some uh, some resentment towards his parents. Well, I I think it's psychologically someone would have a really fun time figuring him out. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they are, like, interviewing him. So they couldn't be doing that now. They could be they, There was also a clip from 60 Minutes, because 60 Minutes actually, like, sat down with him and, like, spoke with him, and he's just so annoying. <laughs> he's He still goes on. He was like, I don't know why I did it. I think it was, like, 
because I just felt bad for them and they were suffering and they weren't all suffering, Charlie. Or somebody would yeah, did call them out like... directly and be like, they weren't suffering. Yeah. I'm pretty sure one of my interviews like did that, but like I'd have to go back. Like I did like I read I we dug in deep. Like I watched like three documentaries, <laughs> read a book, did like countless like yeah. You just want to punch him in the face. All right. Well, that was sinister. We were sarcastic. And we hope you keep listening or watching on Patreon. <laughs> hey! Look at you go. <laughs>